Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Happiness is egg shaped and loves a circle with no end. Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg Shaped. The podcast is up and running, and do we have a guest for you? I am so excited by this one. As I probably said at the beginning of every pod, but this man, when he was asked, he said to me, I don't do pods, but I'll do this one. Now, I don't know if that's the truth, but I'm taking it as a win because this guy has, he carries no threat. He is a nice, warm, humble guy who pokes fun at himself, but has done a lot of nice stuff. And... There's a story that I'm not sure I'm going to tell. We'll see how we go. But everybody has a Deacon Blue story because this man was the drummer for Deacon Blue. He's also, I think, fast becoming a national treasure because everybody loves him. And a lot of the broadcasting that he does is nice and warm and cuddly out on the hills in the Scottish countryside doing good stuff with good people in the best country of the world. He's also all over sport, whether that is the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow or on football or, as we know and love, on lots of rugby. I've met him quite a few times, both in person, sometimes at Murrayfield, my favourite place, and also on here doing things in this strange situation that we've experienced in the last 12 months. Without any further ado, the one, the only, the magnificent Mr. Doogie Vipod. Yes! Bruce, have you been on the happy cornflakes this morning? Come on, what's going on? What, um, what an unbelievable introduction and something I had no way 
I'm going to live up to it. Well, it's very nice to see you, Bruce. Kidding me on, Doogie Vipon. You've done it all, man. You've done it all. (laughs) Silence, right? And and only 35 years old. That's amazing. (laughs) Now, I've been warned by my mum that I have to stop laughing because she can't hear what the person says next. So I'm going to try and and mute my laughter so that she can hear. Because let's face it, Doogie Vipond is everybody's mum's favourite. Listen, don't worry about that because I, I don't actually say anything funny. So you'll have no reason to laugh in the next hour. So we'll be, we'll be fine. We'll be absolutely fine. Not in the slightest. And backstage, big handsome Sean from Fill Your Boots who pushes the buttons and pulls the strings. And the two of us have been having a great chat. We decided, right, we better press record so that other people can hear what's going on. So let's start from the beginning. Where are you just now and what are you up to? I'm in Bridge of Allen, my uh, my hometown, my home village at the moment. I've, I've been living here for the last six years and I love it. Moved here to be close to Stirling County Rugby Club and uh, I just love being in the village. It's a great place. It really is a fantastic place to be. Lots of places to eat, lots of places to drink. Some nice wee pubs, although they're not open at the moment. And um, I'm filming for the new series of Landward. We just finished the Pro 14, in fact, that's not true. One more game to go. Glasgow are playing um, this weekend. But yeah, and I'm looking forward to the Rainbow Cup if it actually happens. Um, so yeah, that, I'm, that's where I am. Bridge of Ireland, home, doing some filming and hopefully rearing to go for the end of the rugby season if it occurs. And you've got your mate Nick Nairn who lives across the street or just next door. Yeah, well, he, he does live 70 yards away. And I moved to Bridge of Ireland and told him he was looking for somewhere to move to I mentioned Bridge of Allen, but I also mentioned lots of other places. He moved here. He set up a telescope in his bedroom, looking straight <laughs> into my bedroom. And it's actually it's actually embarrassing. He's stalking me. I had to get the, the authorities involved. And it just got a bit messy. <laughs> it's really awful. Go away. Go away. Uh, no, now, the two you work got, together, though. The two yeah, you work do. together we, on Landward. We do. We work together on Lambert. We also have the Great Food Guys, which is a, a kind of thing that happened off the back of Lambert. It's a series on BBC Scotland, which was using a lot of the stuff that we did on Lambert. Uh, and the premise, those people who haven't seen Lambert or know what Nick and I do, Nick is obviously a Michelin star chef. He's amazing. But I go out and find some food, you know, the Scottish producers who do incredible things. And I go out and find some food and we cook it and generally go around Scotland in a van and, and serve it to people and either to kind of educate their taste buds or to change their taste buds or simply just to celebrate the great produce we have. So, yeah, it's been great fun working with him, but I am very much his lackey. You know, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. I'm hopeless. <laughs> totally hopeless. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm very happy to kind of be that guy. So uh, that's why our relationship works. And I'd never call him chef as well, which is slightly kind of irks him. So that's good. <laughs> so how does TV work? You do Landward and then do you say this would be a really good thing, or do they come to you and say, this is really good, let's do more with it? Uh, it's a bit of both, really. I mean, we have a, it's a really small team on Landward, a really, really small team, considering we do 13 programmes a year. So it's it's a mixture of both. You know, we have, we have, they have ideas. That, and, we, and because we work in the Scottish countryside as well, lots of stories come around all the time, you know. So similar stories that we've done last year or a couple of years ago, come back if we go and see someone who's starting a project it's nice to be able to go back three or four years later and Lamar's been going for 45 years now it's the longest running series on BBC Scotland so we're still able to go back and, and do things but I mean the Scottish countryside is an ever-changing thing and I totally love it so it's it's great to be part of it really is 
and that's just one of the strings to the bow. How does the drummer from Deacon Blue end up doing a show with a Michelin star chef in the middle of the countryside in a van in Scotland? Exactly. That's well. I've never been much of a planner in terms of my career. It's I've always been a bit of a stumbler when it comes to my own working out what I'm going to do. But the the weird thing is how how I get into telly was. I knew Deacon Blue were splitting up in 1994. We'd made a decision about what we were going to do uh, with the band. Um, we needed to kind of our relationship with the record company wasn't particularly great, and it was getting mis it was becoming miserable just to do what we were doing. It was a real shame because you know we loved what we were doing. But we decided if it doesn't improve, the relationship doesn't improve, we'll, we'll kind of call it a day. So we decided that we would do a Greatest Hits album and a final tour and announce it on the tour. This is our last tour and it'd be on a high and all that. And then I got a job. At, I knew that I was only 27. So I, I knew I applied for a job at STV as a presenter on a program called NB, um, which was like a listings program for the summer. For the summer. And I'd never applied for a job before, so I was really, really overprepared. I genuinely, I was like, because I went from school to be a student, and then from a student to kind of being in Deacon Blue and all that. So I genuinely never applied for a job. So at 27 years old, I thought, well, I better make sure I know what I'm doing. And they asked us to go and um, uh, review a play, an art exhibition, a theater, there was like a theater performance, an opera or something and a gig and I did I went to all of them and I, I wrote a review of all of them not knowing what to do and I wrote pieces to camera and I wrote questions and we knew I was going to go in for a screen test because I got to that point where we were going to go in for a screen test and um, so I wrote all the pieces to camera wrote all my questions wrote a review of each of the things and I took it in to the day of the audition and they couldn't believe that I had done that and I, put, I had a copy for the present for the producer for the director for the camera person and for myself four copies of everything I was super prepared and handed them out. And the, the producer said, I can't believe you've done this. And I was like, I can't believe they haven't done this. They're also coming for the job. Why have they not done that? And then, so I kind of almost bullied my way into the job by being like really prepared. But at that time I was still in the band. So I had to say, because the band were yet to do their tour, the, the, the final tour. So I, when I got the job, I said, right, don't announce this. It was on STV and I said, you cannot announce this. Please keep it under wraps because we're still on tour. We're going to announce it on stage at the Albert, um, Albert Hall in London that we're, this is the last tour. This is the last, the last gigs ever. And then, and then, of course, you can then announce that I'm going to be the new presenter of MB because Brian Burnett had been the presenter up to that point. Oh, yeah. So anyway, um, I... We were on tour, and every day off during the tour, this is a very long story, every day off during the tour, I was coming back up to Scotland to film. So it was an exhausting final tour. I was leaving the gigs, like finishing at 11 o'clock at night, say in Sheffield, then driving up overnight, and then filming all day with Landwork, uh, with uh, NB uh, on a day off, and then, then traveling down the next day again to the next, so the, by which point the bands moved to, you know, Leicester or Leeds or whatever. So and catching up with them and then doing the show. So it was knackered. But STV didn't, they reneged on the promise not to not to announce it. So they announced it before we announced Deacon Blue were split up. <laughs> so it looked like, I announced that I got that I was the new presenter of uh, NB, and then about three, day, three or four days later, Deacon Blue announced that we were splitting up. So it looked like I was the reason the band were splitting up, but so you were, you were you were Yoko Ono. You were the I reason. Yoko. I, I actually did say I blame Yoko. 
Yeah. yeah. So there, we're not here to <clears throat> to provide lessons, but there's two bits in that that I love. One is you didn't have a plan, which yeah. absolutely smacks with me because there's no way I could have had a plan to have found myself where I am just now, and you've not. But the other bit is that over preparation, that absolute dedication to what you did. You've now got, th or not now, you've had them for a while. You've got three boys. How often yeah. do you slip into the the dad talk and, and give them those kind of lectures? Well, I have to, I mean, I, they wouldn't listen to one that was as long as that because like, I'd have to edit it down. But yeah, of course I drop into dad talk all the time. And my three boys are all the way out. They're all out of the house now. They're all onto, uh, you know, further education. So my influence is kind of, um, <laughs> slightly waned and I find that actually quite that quite tough because th it was this year um, that my youngest uh, Hamish who's only 17 he went away to Glasgow and he's staying in a in halls of residence in Glasgow he's studying ballet uh, at the, Cons the Royal Conservatoire and I, I went there as a student as a music student a million years ago when it was called the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama so uh, it's quite a lovely turnaround that um, I met his mum there as well. So, you know, he's now a student where we actually met uh, all those years ago. So that's quite lovely. So, so how, how often were you told to get a real job? Well, I was dead lucky, actually, because my, my dad, mum and dad supported me to, to go and study music because no one else in the family had done anything like that. My dad was very wary of it, as you can imagine. And I don't know about you, Bruce. I'm sure you wanted to be wanted to play rugby for Scotland when you were at school, right? I wanted to play rugby for Scotland when I was at school. I wanted to play football for Scotland. I wanted to play basketball. I play volleyball. I do all these things, uh, and I also I was like, when I was very young, I realised I'm probably not going to be good enough at anything sport-wise to you know represent Scotland. But musically, I could probably do that. You know, I might be able to do this if I work hard enough. And I knew I had to work ridiculously hard. Uh, so the sport thing i thought right it was genuinely my choice so my dad was going you want to do music you want to do sport you'll be going and serving your time you're not doing you're, you're not doing any of that stuff but actually the reality was he saw how hard i was prepared to work at it he knew that he knew i was i never came home early from school any day you know after school activities we were lucky enough at that time to still have after school activities there were a couple of you know teacher strikes around but my school did keep some things going and uh yeah, plus on the Saturday weekends, I was I was out sort of doing music, and uh, he saw how hard I wanted to do it, and so he he um, he supported me in that, and it, it was a big, yeah, a, an important thing. But he was always thinking, as long as I get a degree, as long as I get, you know, something that I can you know hang my hat on, and I can then potentially go on and do anything else. So he wanted to make sure that I studied properly and got a degree for it. And the school that you went to, you you wanted to go to because of music. Yeah. I did. Well, two reasons, because of music and because of sport, and that, because they had after-school activities. I went. I lived in Inchinnan when I was growing up in Renfrewshire, and the high school that most people went to, my brother went to, was Renfrew High School. And Renfrew High, my brother had a hard time there. Uh, he didn't really enjoy it very much. I think he got, he got himself in a wee bit of bother, and he's six years older than me, and I didn't, when I say a wee bit of bother, he didn't give himself any sort of bother. It wasn't. It was nothing major. He was just the kind of. He just struggled. He had one teacher. He, he never get the ball. And like, he didn't. You know, he was never. You know, he wasn't a troublemaker or anything. He had just one teacher. He just did not get on with at all. And he kind of. They had a tricky old time. But 
when you've got a brother who's six years older than you and you're the only other Vipond in the in the place, you're like, is that are you Scott Vipond's wee brother? Oh, it was like in the scouts. Yeah. The scouts as well. Are you Scott Scott's wee brother? Yeah. Oh no. So it's like my brother's a brilliant guy, don't get me wrong, but it's like it's I thought if I if I go to that school, I, then maybe this teacher will mark me. I don't know, but I knew this other school, Parkmeads High School in Erskine, and I knew that they were quite a new school. I knew they were a pretty vibrant school. The headmaster, a guy called David Smart, was a brilliantly sort of progressive heady. He had great after school activities. I mean, their their after school they were amazing in sport and in music and all sorts of stuff. Um, so I was desperate to go there and. Um, also, the, my music teacher, who was a who taught me trumpet as a primary school, you know, he was the guy that came around the schools and taught yep. brass. He was going to he had a full he got a full time job in Park Mains High at the same time as I potentially was going to go there, and I really liked this guy, and he wanted me, and so I, I yeah, I followed him, and uh, so I didn't made the right decision because I don't think if I hadn't gone to that school, I wouldn't be doing this conversation. I definitely wouldn't be having this conversation. It was a great school. And having having those role models, yeah, with without realizing it at the time, and this is one of the things I talk to the boys a lot, and in the schools I've worked in, I talk to kids about doing things they enjoy, because if you enjoy them, you'll do them more, and you tend to get better at them. Those can be both positive and negative things, unfortunately, but the things you enjoy, you do more of. So you obviously found the love for music, and then you had people fueling it. How did you end up on the drums? Well, I ended up in the drums because I did trumpet lessons and I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but it was this guy, Brian Dugood, right? He, he, he ended up going on to be head of instrumental tuition at um, Edinburgh, sort of, I think Edinburgh schools and, and uh, East Lothian as well. I can't remember. But he ended up being head of music once I, long after I left school. But Brian Dugan, he was a great laugh, absolutely fantastic laugh. And um, I wanted to I wanted to do music. And my brother, we used to have a set of drumsticks lying about the house. And I always identified in, in bands, like my brother's a massive Queen fan, as am I. But Roger Taylor, the drummer, I thought, he's the coolest guy in the band. I mean, he's amazing. I love the drummer. He had these leopard skin trousers. I was like, yes, he's amazing. <laughs> And it's watching Top of the Post. I always watch the drummers. And it just, it was like, there was something there. I was like, I, I picked up on rhythm, rhythmic things, you know, and all of that. I just, there was definitely something there. I just was the thing I identified with. And I spoke to that guy, Brian Jugood, who at that time was teaching trumpet and all that. So, and I said, I want to play drum, drums in the primary school band. And he said, yeah, okay, but you're doing it properly. We're reading music. We're, you know, we're getting things for you. So you're still reading music. You're not just jamming along. If you're going to do this, do it properly. And I did. So I went, I went to the high school with him, and there was the head of music there was a guy called Keith Hamilton. And Keith Hamilton was a bit of a hard ass, but a great guy. I mean, he, he was the guy that really pushed me. Brian Jugood was his assistant. So Brian was the kind of one, sort of younger like uh, you know, cooler you know, guy. Chance, chance your arm a wee bit. Um, later, I must tell you a story. I actually used to go to pubs with him when I was still at school. I'll tell you that in a minute. <laughs> but it's like but Keith Hamilton was the hard ass. Brian Jugo was the cool guy. And then, so together they worked really, really well. Keith Hamilton didn't let me away with anything. He was like, because he saw I was kind of a chance at now and again. Brian with Brian Jugo, but he'd be okay. Brian Jugo used to do this thing. He used to think it was the funniest thing in the world. You know, where we'd be in a band rehearsal because we, my school, we had which is not unusual now, but it was very unusual back then. 
we had an orchestra like most schools had, but we had a wind band, concert band, jazz band, um, you know, choir, senior choir, junior choir, and all these things. Now we were one of the first schools in Scotland to actually have a drum kit. So none other schools had drum kits at that time. So you know we're looking back in the dark ages. No one had that kind of stuff, but part means high did because they were doing different types of music. But Brian Dugood, when he was conducting the band, he used to always go, now, Doogie, Doogie, just do a wee fill, just do, Doogie, 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 and then laugh. And of course, all the band would laugh, every rehearsal, like, Doogie, 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 Doogie. <laughs> That's hilarious, Brian, you know, but you know, he just like did it all the time. And they were brilliant together, they worked really well. And then I ended up, Brian Dugood became a conductor for, for uh, brass bands, senior brass bands. So uh, as a senior school pupil, I used to go, the brass band rehearsals with him. So we'd go like to Loudon Youth Band or the Co-op or or or, um, or Whitburn because he was conducting and they needed drummers that could, a percussionist that could read music. So I used to travel with him and then that's after that we'd go for pints. <laughs> I'd be 16, 17, all in for a pint afterwards. Not that I was drinking. Yeah, I... Uh... I went on the Scotland supporters bus. My geography teacher, Mr. Patterson, learnt the pipes purely because he was part of the Tartan Army. Yes. And if ever there were tickets free for a, a midweek Scotland game, he would say, H.A., do you, do you want to come? Will you be allowed to come? So my mum would pack me off on the Scotland supporters bus with all my teachers, Mr. Alexander, a biology teacher, Mr. Aitken, English teacher, and they would have those little French bottles of beer that you got oh. in 10 packs. And I remember him giving me one. And I couldn't work out how to open it. And I was like, what? And he's like, it's a twist top. I said, like, all right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then he would be miserable on a Thursday morning because he'd been out on the Scottish supporters bus. And then yes. the head teacher at the time, Brian Keenan, had given him permission during Euro 96 to go down for the Scotland-England game. But nobody was to know. But then... <laughs> But then on the STV coverage, it cuts to Trafalgar Square and this piper in the middle of Trafalgar Square. And it's Mr. Patterson who was supposed to be teaching geography at Gala Academy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a story straight out of Uwe Wally. It was brilliant. But yeah, but these, guys, these guys are good, aren't they? They make up, I mean, you're a teacher awesome. yourself. So the, the influence that teachers can have on those formative years, the influence that any positive person can have during those times is just so important i mean god it's I, a great know, sign like... though having all the bands band bands to me are the sign of a healthy school when kids yeah. feel that they can put themselves out there to perform and music is so subjective yeah so to put yourself up and say right I, like i remember going to another school uh, uh, to watch a concert and they played a heap of green day which yeah. is not everybody's cup of tea but if you're going to stand up on stage and perform three songs from green day that's bravery determination resilience performance communication yeah. it's all those amazing things that we tell people we're teaching kids but a band is an amazing thing so was that where you found your belonging was that where you thought this is this is where i can be the best me uh, yes, I mean, what, what I really, I mean, I think initially, Bruce, the reality was that because we had a, you know, such, such a vibrant music department and we did so many things within the school and our, our Christmas concerts last a week, we had five nights of Christmas concerts because there was so much going on. What I, what I saw was if you do music, you get off classes. So, <laughs> and if you're a drummer, you get set up, you've got to set up all the drums so you get off even more classes. So it's great. Miss, uh, Mr. Hamilton says I've got to think of that a couple of times he did me in because, Miss, uh, 
Mr. Hamilton asked me if I can go up to the music department and set up yeah. for rehearsal. <laughs> Did he? And so some teachers would go, oh, whatever, go. And then other teachers before Mr. Hampton say, uh, Douglas Fyfond here says you've asked him to come up. Well, did he now? And he did. Well, I'd be a major shout then. But, nice. uh, but he's. Uh, but yeah, I, I quite liked the idea of getting out of classes. And I actually talked in my pal Martin Willis, who's now still a full-time musician, percussionist. We were at school together. I talked him into doing that because he was he was going to start playing the E flat horn or something. I'm like, that's dull. So uh, and I and I genuinely mean that is dull. So and. So I said, be a drummer, be a percussionist. It's a great laugh when you get off classes and stuff. But he was quite a smart guy. Missing classes for him didn't matter. Missing classes for me was a major <laughs> issue. <laughs> so that's oh, what I quite like. But I tell you, there was a moment, there was a genuine moment when I, uh, I, was, I got into the Strathclyde Schools Orchestra. So you'd have like, your schools orchestra, you'd have your Renfrewshire Schools Orchestra, and then Strathclyde, so the bigger one. And we were playing the Firebird Suite by Stravinsky, right? Now, I'd never been exposed to this type of thing. And we used to go away on a, on a, um, a camp, a music camp to Castle Tower in the noon, sort of over in the Cowell Peninsula. That was another reason to be part of the bands, because you got magic trips. <laughs> so we used to go there, residential trip for a week, and we played this music. And this piece, um, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite, I remember listening to it, and suddenly, he, you know, because you, you've got your music... You're hearing what's going on in the percussion sections at the back. And I was hearing all these things happening. And you hear all that. And as, as you rehearse it more and more, you're expecting things and waiting things to happen. And you're following the score and all that stuff. And it actually affected me in, a, in, a, in, a, in an emotional way, yes, but also in a physical way. Because I, I, it made it just something, did something to me. That residential trip, um, when I was listening to this music, and so I thought, this music's been written 100 years ago. But it's brilliant. It feels modern. It's got dissonance in it. It's got something. It's got rhythmical things. It's got weirdness in it. But everyone's playing it together. And somebody sat down and written that. And we're all following the guy at the front. And we're all part of a greater thing. And we're all pulling together for the same goal. And I, and then, and it was like, and I actually felt it was like a big emotional kind of weird and physical change in me. And I thought, I maybe I could do this as a living. This seems like a good thing to do. And it was on that trip that I kind of decided that I actually. Rather than you know arsing about because actually I was kind of arsing about at that point. Actually, maybe I have to work harder at it, and uh, and so working hard. That's what I thought. If I go, if I'm going to have to do this, I'm going to have to be good and good enough to get a gig in an orchestra. So and that's why I wanted to be an orchestral percussionist. I, lo- I, I love, love that. So that was your eureka moment. That was the yeah. right. This is it. Yeah, and, that, and that's the all those things you said when people say sport can do sport can do that but sport's not for everybody music has uh-huh. all those same qualities and it brings people together and you know the the tv shows of going into the rap lock in sterling and getting the, yeah. the orchestra together or getting the Amazing. choirs together it's bringing people together for that common purpose mm-hmm. build relationships share experiences create memories whether it's sport or whether it's band or whether it's it's performance or public speaking or debate in society it's finding that thing that that triggers you so that then yeah no it does i was going to say but debate in society was only certain people that ever worked in you know it was only the smart folk who were really good at english who ever got to do the debate you know i mean they 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 were that that was unachievable for most people but you know being part of a musical group I mean, also it helps in, in arithmetic as well. The amount of times <laughs> when you're a percussionist, you have to count lots of bars when you don't do anything. <laughs> so, 53, 2, 3, 4, 523, 2, 3, 4, 5, yeah, so all, all of that. 
but that that confidence, having you know, having that ability to do things at a teenage, where where that's when you when you become, you know, it comes. Well, I don't know. I was always quite confident because because I was involved in that. I think that gave me more confidence. But a lot of girls, a lot of women, especially, kind of become uh, a little more insular when you're a teenager. And all that, being, but being part of a bigger thing like an orchestra or a band or a team, uh, and having the support around that is just so important. I mean, God Almighty, I'm so passionate about it and recently I've been part of the campaign to make sure that the instrumental tuition and sport and art and all these things are up there in the curriculum because you know I know there was you know they were going to stop instrumental tuition in some of the some of the regions and that would just be horrendous man because that giving kids today less chance than I had that's not the way it's supposed to work yeah I am my kids were given their Christmas concert performance and um, a little one, Katie, was in primary one and there were eight classes in primary one. So the, the hall is rammed with parents and they, they'd set the kids up in a hexagon so that Katie was performing over there. So we were sitting over here and that kid was there. So the parents were there and it, and it was really clever. And at the end, the deputy head teacher is holding the door open. And as we walk out, I said to her, do you know, what I'm trying to figure out, when do we tell kids or when do they start believing that they can't sing? Because every single one of those kids were belting out to the best they possibly could those Christmas carols. And it was beautiful yeah. to watch. But if you'd asked all the parents to do the same thing, the whole, you know, there wouldn't have been many performers. Because at some point we start saying things like, I'm not musical, I can't sing, I'm not sporty, I'm not a maths person, I'm not a, and it absolutely breaks my heart. I can't yeah. draw, it absolutely breaks my heart. I then went back to school and the first person I met was the music teacher. And I started to have this conversation with the music teacher where he said, every, I reckon every day, every person will click their fingers to music, will sing in the car or in the shower or hum a tune or, so everybody mm -hmm. has, some kind of musicality whether you want yeah. to listen to me sing or not is a, is a different matter but i can sing you can sing we might not be the one on stage in front of many people at the albert yeah. hall but when why do kids stop doing stuff and it's adults perceptions onto them mm -hmm. that you can't sing and it absolutely breaks my heart bruce i can't believe you said that because that's something that really really upsets me too because i it is so important to to try and keep that positivity going. That that's extraordinary. You said that because I I I'm now with the, I met this girl Fiona and we're now together and and you know and it's amazing and, and fantastic and brilliant and uh, she was told at school that she was tone deaf. Horrendous parents like that's, I mean that's a, that's well that's her, a horrendous thing to say to a child. She can sing. She's great, absolutely great. But she every time she tries to, she's terrified. She comes that wee lassie that's told she's rubbish. It's terrible. We should never do that. I've got other pals that have been told exactly the same thing. You're right. Everyone can sing. When you're a kid, everyone can draw. The very fact that we've all got accents means that we're, we can sing because accents are listening to somebody and talking like them. And I, that's what singing is initially. But you know, before music was all written down, you, you, you heard the monk singing his thing in the church or the chapel or whatever, and you, and you followed it. And similarly, you know, a lot of the kind of, the Psalms in, in Gaelic uh, culture is the same thing. You have a collar out the front and they, and they repeat it. Everyone can do it. Not everyone's brilliant at it, but everyone can do it. And accents and the way that people speak, because let's face it, the way you can speak, uh, being from Gala, is miserable and terrible. And who, why would you ever want to speak like that? <laughs> but, 
So anyone from Gala has learned to sing the Gala way. It's yeah. like, I mean, and I've been learned to sing the whatever I'm from way, I don't know. But everyone, accents are, are all to do with the fact that you're you're following the singer. You've heard singers, basically, people speaking are actually singing because the voice, you know, voice comes up and down. And if you can repeat that, you can sing that back too. And, and it really upsets me too. We should never do that. Never no. tell them the uh, do, do you know, But do you know, though, there's still there are still teachers telling kids you you'll never be a musician or you'll never be a rugby player or there's that's still even though we know all the stuff we know there are still people telling kids what yeah. they cannot do and it just breaks my heart anyway that's a that's you know, a whole other Bruce, story on that on that very very point and we're going to go off this we need to go back to the positivity but actually it's interesting how many times do you hear people who've done amazing things in sport or in music or whatever yeah. and they say yeah. Um, and they say, oh, my teacher told me this. I'd never do yeah. that. But I thought, I'm going to prove them wrong. That's all very well. But I think that teacher has done more damage to more kids by saying that stuff to them. You hear the one story of someone who's been really yeah. successful, but actually it completely dulls the ambition of maybe 100 kids, maybe 200, maybe 500 kids compared to that one that came through that's gone, bugger you, I'm going to show you. Yeah. Because that really does... You have to be so careful with where the young people, when, you know, as far as your influence on them, and you know that better than anyone, Bruce. You know, and so careful. It's okay now and again to have a laugh with them and go, really, you know, and it's okay to kind of realize when they make mistakes that you can laugh at it. But as long as you're not laughing at it by destroying them, you've got to laugh at it and look at right, how we build, how we're going to move on from that. But, but to say you can't do anything, God Almighty, that's not what we're here for. We're, we're here going to give them an opportunity to do anything they want and and catch them when they fall. But but yeah. still give them that support. My yeah. oh god, it just it really upsets me too. Yeah, well, we're we're on <laughs> the same page. That's a direction we're expecting this chat. To no, go. I know. Let's let's get on to Deacon Blue because yes. I I love Deacon Blue. I think everybody loves Deacon Blue, and I remember being on Aaron. And you were actually there, and I've never told you this story because you pinched my uh, table in the beer garden in Lamlash, and my mate Donnie McBride was absolutely raging. But that's a whole other story. But there oh. was a there was a boat. <laughs> <laughs> there was a boat. First come, in, first I, I can't even remember where it was on Aaron, but I took a picture of it, and it was a little rowing boat, and it was called Dignity. Yes. And and there must be there must be a, a thousand boats called Dignity because yeah. of Deacon Blue. Now that greatest hits album that you're talking about has a special place in my heart. And I'm just gonna leave that there because my wife listens to this uh, podcast or she tells me she does. I'm still not convinced she does. But mm -hmm. your your music the, the music you've been part of has been the soundtrack to amazing things in people's lives or mm. they've come to a concert and they've left happier than when they arrived and with a mm. memory that will last forever do you ever think about that or were you just playing music because it was fun all the time every single show bruce i'm not kidding you now i'm not reinventing history this is absolutely what we were talking about all the time when we were playing we we before we went on stage, it was always if somebody falls in love tonight, and this is like the early days when we're playing clubs. If somebody falls in love tonight, uh, you know we've done a good job. If 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 you can change, if they go out, or or even better, if they go and buy a record, we <laughs> genuinely we we kind of we wanted to create moments genuinely in every single show, and it's all driven by Ricky. I mean, but we totally bought into that, and because I wanted to study to be a musician, I was studying to be a musician. I I 
Deacon Blue was, we were a professional organization. We, were, we, worked, we worked hard at what we did. We, we rehearsed ridiculous amounts, you know, when we were younger. And we, and we still do. <laughs> we probably rehearse a lot, a lot more on our own, so we're prepared enough for the rehearsals when we go in together. But, but yeah, we used to work extraordinarily. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Really hard. And the live show, we genuinely talked about it, making sure that if you can make a difference to one person during that show, any show you do, then it's going to be it's worthwhile. And that could be someone holding hands or the first time you kiss that lassie or whatever. And uh, we were desperate to create these mighty moments. That's why Ricky would do these things when we were playing, where he would almost take the audience on. It was like a, it was like a you know, a battle. And it was like, I'm going to make you get so quiet. I'm going to get you so quiet, so quiet. And then start going, singing off mic or singing, taking it. We'd start singing a Van Morrison song in the middle of Chocolate Girl or something. And we're not expecting it. But these wee moments we're trying to create that, that like, oh, this, that, was, that was great. Didn't always work. But, you know, we tried every single time. So, yes, we're never just playing the music, never just going through the motions. And if anyone was, their arses were kicked. Seriously. Uh, I, and if I anyone love... in the crew, if anyone in the crew who was part of it, we we wanted we were like we were like we are probably would be a bit of a pain in the arse in terms of like making sure we were we wanted everything, including everybody included involved in the show, was part of this important kind of making that moment happen. So yeah, it, yeah, we were we're all about that, totally so all about that. that. I, I love hearing that. Did did you have like a team talk before you went out? Yeah, I mean, we we did. We kind of tended to we tended to have a bit of a blether before we went on stage, just kind of just to focus the mind. It's it's hugely important before you before you do anything that we would always um, we'd always make sure that our dressing room was clear just a wee bit before we went out, and just to have it. We kind of thought. I mean, now we now before we go on stage, we actually have a wee kind of you know a little huddle, and someone someone says something, and it all sounds a bit airy fairy, but actually it's a no, brilliant no, thing no. to do. You need to remember yeah. how to, you know, the reason you're here, you remember people who are no longer here and all of that stuff. And and, and we genuinely now and, and more than ever just like really really feel blessed that we're still able to do it, you know, and, and it's a lovely thing to be able to do. We're in Australia and New Zealand at the end of 2019 doing gigs and we're going next year. I think we're planning to go off and do more across there if we can. If we can. And, you know, and that's yeah, I'm 54, and Ricky's nine years older than me. So being able to still do that all these years later is just a, a lovely thing. We never take it for granted. And I think, I don't know, I hope it's because of that effort we put in that, that maybe the people still are interested. I don't know. 
Because there's obviously I, people who, who listen to the records and there's people who come and see us live. And I hope that when people come and see us live, they go, shit, they're working pretty hard. <laughs> they look knackered when they walk off the stage <laughs> at the end. And we did back then. I mean, we, we used to play for so long, almost as long as I'm talking at the moment. But but it was like, it, we we look knack- we do look done in at the end of the shows. I mean, it's physically a big, it's a big sort of thing for us, you know? So we have to, you know, Make sure it's, we're doing it, it's so like it's so like sport now. I I yeah. saw you or I met you in the Six Nations of 2020. So you'd done your tour in Aussie and Kiwi, and you'd come back. And I remember asking you, and New Zealand gave you a massive buzz. You, yeah. The reception you got in New Zealand was huge. Did you realise at any point that this this is worldwide? This is I'm I'm wee Doogie who started on the truck. Like, do you pinch yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first time we ever felt, I ever felt, we were. This is quite early days in the band. Although when I say early days, it's because I'm talking to this guy who's 54. And when I say early days, when you're in the band and and you know building, we were we were sort of. Um, I guess we signed a record deal and we were sort of going professionally for eight years before we kind of split up in 1994 kind of split um, uh, but but before that it was a couple of years before that so 10 years i look at that first part as 10 years so in the early part maybe like third or fourth year and we were on tour and we were in uh the playing a gig in, in uh, amsterdam and it was, we were playing dignity and they were they sang along to dignity so the this, all these Dutch people who don't speak England uh, English as a first language were singing Dignity, and it was like they know the words to your tune. How's that? And you're like, that is amazing. And, and you do, you're going to look around going, <laughs> now, all the, most of the Dutch people can speak really good English anyway, but then when you hear people in Spain singing it, and then you're like, oh my God. We had a live version of Dignity, which was the B-side to Real Gone Kid, which number, it, was, it was different, you know, they put things out differently. Real yeah. Gone Kid, and a live version of Dignity it was a double A side in Spain as a single. And I went to number one in Spain. You're like, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and so the, these you know, the people in Spain, of course, um, speaking different versions of that language, you know, uh, you know, singing along to Dignity. So it's, um, it was amazing. Amazing. And, and that's like for sport, I suppose, hearing someone chant your name if you score a try or score a goal or you know, you do something ridiculous. Is is that the moment? Is it when you hear everybody singing back to you? Like, does Ricky just sort of drop the mic and let them take mm-hmm. over? And and yeah. you obviously can't sort of drop the mic and see what's no. going on. You've got to keep going. But that, you, you've, yeah. you've spoken a lot about emotion. And music mm-hmm. is, of course, it's emotion. It's you communicating an emotion. Um, mm-hmm. And songs like Chocolate Girl are different from Real Gone Kid. And Dignity yeah. is a different thing again. And so... How how can you? I mean, your concentration must be off the hook if you can still keep the beat on the drums while absorbing all that, or is it afterwards that you can get the real kick? No, I, I mean because it's actually quite good because being you know trained as an orchestral musician, you can actually it's really important to be able to listen to everything and to hear what's going on and get a sense of what's going on. But I, one thing I could never see, I can never see beyond the first two rows because I'm sitting at the back, you know, and I never see the audience. And because the audience are generally quite dark anyway, Ricky probably could see uh, further in. And we used to use these little blinders um, during Dignity. Uh, and sort of, and we used to put on, on, our, on a big rack and we'd, we'd light the audience. 
we can't do that now because the audience are all bald, so it, it kind of shines back. And it's like a disco ball, and we all end up getting blinded, so we can't do it anymore. <laughs> that's, that's just the women. <laughs> Bigger foreheads like Queen Elizabeth I. I don't know why I said that. I wish I hadn't. Right, here we go. So, yes, but going back to um, playing live shows, what did you ask me? I can't remember. There was, a, there was a very salient point I was going to make there. Oh, yeah, feeling that, um, like, doing all the things. It's really bizarre as a drummer because um, – Back in the days when people you know, get more really excited, it was mostly stand-up shows as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the front rows were all, and people start clapping along. So there are millions of, we've, we've recorded every show we've ever done. But Dignity, as soon as you start playing, and, then, and Ricky says, there's man, I mean, and so everyone else starts singing a lot, and then they start clapping. And audiences tend to want to clap and get faster and faster. But they're singing along with it, and I'm sitting there going, right, turn the hi-hat because I'm going... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like everyone in the band I'm going look at me watch me because it's like easy to go with them yeah that agree in the guitar player sometimes just if you slightly don't pay attention look at the crowd going and really get into it you think shit he's going with the crowd shit stay with me you know <laughs> so I'm like <laughs> and I'm just I'm, I'm here they're singing there's a man I meet very good loud listen to the drum so I'm kind of shouting to the audience listen we'll all be fine if you listen to this one if you listen to the hi-hat, we'll all get to the end at the same time and we'll not be knackered. That'll and be we'll, fine. So you're, <laughs> yeah, so that's you're, you're the captain. Well, at that point, I certainly was a self-appointed captain in those days. I think I kind of made myself like, oh, it wasn't me. Because you, be, you have to have your role, don't you? Ricky's the singer. Oh, well, James, of course. all super talented. So I'm like, okay, what can I do? I can shout from the back. Just like, See, you right, always always have a puppet yourself always have a puppet yourself you never miss a chance right so rock and roll in the 1980s scotland yeah. are the scottish voices all over the place yeah. scottish music is it you must have had some absolute riots <laughs> yeah actually i remember we uh, we met the proclaimers we were on tour at the same time and uh, we met the proclaimers and i think again it was sheffield off the big rock and roll time in sheffield and uh we all got back to the hotel. They were playing, we were playing different venues on the same night. And we all got back to the hotel and went to our beds. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I tell you, I, I, we, I used to, we used to stay in a hotel in London. All the bands used to stay in a hotel in London called the Columbia Hotel. And I remember we, uh, we became aware of this band, Danny Wilson, right, who are from Dundee, yeah. who I totally loved. I mean, that first record, Mary's Prayer, still remains Mary's on that Prayer. favorite album what of a all tune. time. Yeah. Amazing. Second record, the second Summer of Love, you know, the video was recorded in reverse and all that, and it was like, amazing. I loved them, but I remember we didn't know them at that point. Originally, they were called Spencer Tracy, weirdly, okay. uh, and they had to change their name to Danny Wilson because the, the estate of Spencer Tracy said, you can't use that name. But we didn't know, hadn't heard their music, but we knew of them. Uh, and we remember we, were, we had been filming, I think, a video for Dignity, and we came back to this hotel at night, and all we heard was these boys in the corner having an argument in Dundonian, and like the roughest Dundonian. You're the most unreliable person I've ever met. No, you're the most unreliable person I've ever met. No, you're the most unreliable person I've ever met. And they were like, and Ricky said, Hey, that's Danny Wilson. That sounds like a bunch of Dundonian boys having a fight. And of course, that's two brothers and their mate they were at school with, the three of them. And it was him. And that's <laughs> that night, 
we came over and introduced ourselves to them um, and said, oh, hiya, we think you're great, by the way. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> we met them. They actually, they, um, they were kind of wild because they were filming the video for Mary's Prayer. And, uh, and Gary Clark, who's the lead singer in that band, they'd had a few pina coladas the night before in the Columbia Hotel. And if you're shooting a video, you're always up early, super early to go and get makeup done and all that. It's a bloody long day. <laughs> Theirs was supposed to be a two-day shoot. So they had their record company were spending money on them. Ours weren't. <laughs> so that uh, so Danny, Gary Clark, the lead singer, had had a few pinacoladas and basically couldn't get out of his bed and you couldn't get him awake. The two other boys had got in the taxi and gone to the shoot. And everyone else was phoning the hotel. Eventually, they got the maid to go into the room and to like shake him out of his bed. And still, he never got out of his bed. He was totally mashed. So um, he missed the first day of their video for their first single. With and they were signed to Virgin. We were signed to CBS. So yes, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find to it. Is this deflection? Is this deflection? Yeah. You tell me stories about other bands here. Yeah, we we were the worst rock and roll band in the world. We were rubbish. We were crap at it because we were also a Presbyterian. We had a pretty strong work ethic. We're like, I used to be, I genuinely, but I don't leave you. Don't clean that, clean that ashtray up. Clean that ashtray. Up. Look, at, don't leave that mess lying there. And you, and I always do it. And I always did it then, and I still do it. When you finish your drinks on the table, pick the glasses up and take them back to the bar. So we used to. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. It's, I just imagine my mum going Douglas. <laughs> would you be happy if somebody left that line there? no you wouldn't would you get it picked up and get it back but okay mom. so now um we used like uh, we used to get letters genuinely used to get letters from hotels because we tend to stay in small hotels and there was a one hotel in uh, in leicester just outside leicester they we used to kind of base ourselves in and it was a brilliant wee place this is in the very early days and it was in a place called blaby and we used to base ourselves there and the guy liked us so much that he le he used to leave an honesty bar for us so we'd get home in the middle of the night and he'd leave about an honesty bar and he'd leave sandwiches and all that and he had a pool table no the snooker table and they had a jacuzzi no it was a nice wee small hotel but they, they it was an on they left us with an honesty bar and of course anybody else knows that you could go right or rip the piss out of this absolutely like whoa but we didn't. We were like, we'd write everything down and go, fair play, you know, fair play, decent, nice guy and all that. And we genuinely, we'd write everything down, we'd tidy it up. Now, now and again, we were a bit, so we used to get letters from us, thank you so much for being so polite and nice. And they're like, this is not rock and roll. This is just being, this is like going out to a tea shop. You need to get more wild. I love it. I love that. Right, before we move off of Deacon Blue, rugby players, when they stop, uh -huh. And and I've just listened to Dan Carter recently. The the thing they missed is the changing yeah. rooms. Yes. How 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 did that go? You've said it's not massively rock and roll, but those moments that you shared with the people and I read <laughs> Bruce Bruce Springsteen's autobiography is absolutely stunning. He, he wrote himself. Yeah. It is beautiful. And there's a there's a section in it that I absolutely love that could describe music or sport or and it's. We were a group of people brought together, different strengths. We performed every night to the best we could, and we shared those experiences. We made those yeah. memories. And I just, I absolutely love it. What yeah. was that like for Deacon Blue? Well, the, the thing, when we split up in 1994, because, I mean, I, I met Ricky when I was 18. So, and he's, he was a teacher in Glasgow at that point. And so, you know, you know, established guy, you know, he's got a job, you know. He was writing all these songs. We we kind of 
yeah, we put the band. We had it. We originally put the band together of, and then we slightly changed the people that were in it initially because the um, guitar player and the bass player, um, actually, and the piano player at that time weren't really working. So we we kind of we went round and, and got different people, and so Deacon Blue was formed. I, I'm the only original member, I guess. From the but you know you would never know the first um, the first guys could never actually really did any recording with these guys. We would just get a sense that it wasn't working as well as it could be. And I wanted you and Vernal to play bass because I knew he was amazing. Uh, piano player Jim Prime, he'd been playing with Altered Images and he'd been working in the bank for a couple of years. And so Ricky was asking questions about people. And Graham Kelling, the guitar player, he um, another guy was supposed to come along for an audition, but he, could, he didn't fancy it, so he sent Graham along instead. It just worked, so we're kind of like you know, it, it was classic stuff. We all met, we, so we didn't know each other. We weren't a bunch of pals at all. And then Lorraine obviously became involved when we were doing Rain Town. Ricky and Lorraine fell in love and, and all of that. And it's amazing. But, um, but yeah, so we didn't know each other. So we kind of grew up together through the band and the success of the band and, and sitting in a bus together and having good gigs and less good gigs and having good news and less good news and being on tour in Europe and having to cancel it because somebody's ill and all of that. So big highs, big lows, you know. Um, and yeah, and the only people you can actually talk about it was with them. Even though I I got married when I was quite young, and I was with my wife, you know, we were together for a long time. We we you know we were all we were going through that. But in terms of actually the experience of being in the bus or being on tour or being in the studio or all of that, you could only really talk about it to the other people. And you end up having your own language. It's a weird kind of you end up have your own kind of like way of speaking, and and you say a word, and it, and it's a, a joke that you said five years ago. But when we split up in 1994, I very quickly tried to arrange days out or nights out or whatever, meet in the pub or we'll go for a coffee or we'll go for a curry. And not everyone turned up and I got really upset about that. I was really kind of like, oh no, why, why don't you? But I didn't, I didn't realize everyone needed a bit of time to actually get over what we'd been doing, you know, and I needed, needed, needed to deal with it in their own way before coming back together and, and being able to do it again. I was like, no, no, in a month's time, I'm going to, we're all going to meet and it's going to be this, that, and, and I used to really, it used to really, really upset me when it didn't feel. But it, yeah, we needed to work, work out a way at the end of it. And I'm saying at the end, because we then, it took us five years to do anything again. Um, and, it, we, and we didn't fall, we didn't split up by falling out. We actually did, it was a kind of, we worked it out in a business way, as I told you at the start. It was a business sort of, if things don't improve, we're going to have to kind of stop it. And we, we, just, we just finished when we wanted. So yeah. So yes, that experience thing, that shared experience, was such an important thing and uh, and, and amazing as well. And now, and I think, now you're back. Is it is it better, or is it just different? It's 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 different now. It's very different now because when you're at your first incarnation, you're really chasing something. You're really chasing um, that career, and you're chasing uh, the records and all. You're you know in the in the charts. Although weirdly, in the last. Um, eight years we have put out quite a few records and we have been creative again and we have been doing stuff that's really that i can really hope we can all hold on to and say this is actually pretty good and we have had weirdly had some chart success for all that means these days and um, because in terms of record sales it's completely nothing compared to the old days so actually having that ability to um, stay relevant and do do new music and and city of love which was a the record came out a year ago, just before the pandemic uh, hit, and, and the amount of people that actually sent messages about reading the lyrics and that, and and saying, "Oh, you must have been written up." It seems to be written for this time, but of course it wasn't. It was written in the two years leading up to when we released it. 
but um, you know the the kind of the kind of messages of of togetherness and hope and fellowship and love and broken hearts and all of that stuff is, is so important. And it seems that you know it was really touching for people to send little notes about um, you know the, the the political content and also the, the way that record sounds because it sounds like a Deacon Blue record, but it sounds like a Deacon Blue record that's kind of moved on. Uh, and and you kind of yeah, you're still doing things that are that you clearly love and you feel that are relevant. So it's just it's a nice thing to still be part of. It's it's a brilliant thing to still be part of. And Ricky Ross is the driving force behind all that. Bit about that. You know, I, again, I spoke to you when you'd come back from New Zealand and you were excited about this. You were excited about City of Love and you, you said yeah. it's new stuff and it's good stuff and it's it's fresh stuff. So right, I'm gonna mm. here's here's my segue from from that. Deacon Blue played at quite an amazing event for a mutual friend of ours, Mr. Doddy Weir. How how did that come about? And and then you're obviously heavily involved or, or quite often involved in similar way to me. When when we can, we try and help out with Doddy. Uh -huh. So your friendship and relationship with Doddy, and then how about that event that, that was down in Kelso? Yeah, well, that is, I mean, I, I've known Doddy for a long time and and Basically, I never knew Doddy when he was a player. Uh, more's the pity because I wasn't. You know, we were kind of touring. I mean, Doddy and I are, well, he's a couple of years younger than me, but you know, he was playing at a time when we were kind of going around the world and touring and all that. So, but I got to knew Doddy. <laughs> got to know Doddy when I started presenting rugby for the BBC, and I'm laughing because every time he came into the studio, it was just a laugh. I mean, so funny, and so I just really got we just sort of uh, as soon as we first time we met we just kind of hit it off and just enjoyed each other's company and he loved the wind up as he does you know he still does he's a hell of a man for it and but it's all done with in a lovely way there's no it's uh he he would never take anything too far he would make it everyone would laugh but you'd never take it too far and i remember i think i've told you this story before the first time chris patterson ever came into the studio chris is obviously going on to be like a very serious and very successful broadcaster. But the first time he came into the studio, we were in Aberdeen, in Scotland against Canada, I think it was, and Chris was injured because he'd, um, he'd, he'd sort of um, suspected broken eye socket or something like that. So anyway, I said to him before we came into the studio, Dodie, Chris Patterson's come in today and I'm told he's really nervous, so don't you be winding him up. Be nice to him, okay? I want you to be really nice to him and make sure you welcome him in here because he's worried about it. And we're in this tiny little room at Pataudry and it's the lights are in and all. <laughs> I said, be nice to him. And he went, ah, of course I'll be nice to him. And so Chris Patterson opened the door and, and Donnie went, all right, Shandy boy, what's wrong with you? A suspected bro uh, broken eyes. Suspected, suspected. Did I ever tell you I was away with the British Narius lines and my leg was hanging off? And I was like, Doddy, for God's sake, man. But it was funny. And Chris, that actually weirdly made Chris quite uh, kind of calm them down a wee bit because he was he was worried about doing the broadcast. Doddy was winding them up. And I always remember that day, Chris appeared in the studio and he had a blue shirt on, a light blue shirt. And I think he was worried about sweating. So he was wearing a t shirt underneath it, right? <laughs> white t-shirt and this blue shirt and it was a roasting hot day actually i reminded him about recently and i said chris you were sitting there sweating <laughs> like you the pale blue shirt you didn't look comfortable but i mean chris is a brilliant guy he's amazing but I, subsequently i got to kind of know doddy every year at the highland show doddy and i you would meet and we'd go for a couple of pina coladas a couple of pints and have a and have a laugh and then of course melrose every year 
we do the live broadcast and often go for a drink afterwards. And so Dory's just such a great, you know, positive guy and an amazing, fun and, you know, really recognisable figure even before he became known as the guy with MND. You know, Dory is just such a lovely person, just such a lovely character and such a positive influence. Walks into a room, of course you can see him, big gangly goat <laughs> he is, you know. It's so, and so, but everyone sees him, but he smiles at everybody. He makes everyone, makes all the girls kind of go, you know, flatter, you know, flattered by his charm and his wit and his loveliness, and which is beyond me because he's a big ugly bastard. But there you go. But, you know, but it's amazing. It's amazing. But he does exactly the same to every guy in the room as well. He, he charms them all. He makes everyone feel good. He's one of these guys that walks into the room and everyone feels better for having met him. And it's, that's a brilliant gift. And it's something that, he would, doesn't have to be that guy, but he is that guy, and he's always been that guy. So, you know, when he got at MND, it was just easy. You know, of course we're going to get involved. You know, we, we're not going to. How can we not get involved with a guy like that? So the gig at Kelso, um, I I kind of uh, said to Ricky and Lorraine, actually, about potentially, you know, coming down and doing uh, playing at that. And Ricky, I mean, I'd never actually asked Ricky to do anything. We've done charity things over the years, but I actually never asked Ricky to do anything before, just because he gets asked to do things all the time. And I'd never actually said to him, and I said, because I knew that he had, have, he had a friend who had died of MND. And I kind of was like, going, listen, I'm, I'm involved with this Doddy Aid thing, and Doddy Charity, oh, sorry, it wasn't Doddy Aid then, it was a Doddy's Charity and all that. And he had seen something or had been in touch. I think he'd met Doddy. He'd met Doddy when he was with me. Doddy was with me, he met him. And I said, listen, we, I've never asked you this before, but we're, we're doing this dinner and it's big. We're trying to raise as much money as possible. And uh, and he said, do you want me to do it? And I said, would you? Would you come down and do it? And I said, well, we'll have to make sure it's good because the band couldn't do it because the band are a pain in the arse in terms of uh, there's, we, we, we require a lot of, you know, plugins and help or, you know, roadies and things. It's just, it's a complicated thing to be arriving on the stage in the middle of Kelso. It, it would have been difficult to do it. <laughs> Technically, I mean, more than anything. So, so I said, Ricky, would you do it? And I went, I'll do it. Of course I'll do it. I'd be delighted to do it. And he was absolutely kind of like, no, you know, no hesitation. I'd love to do it. And he came down and he played a couple of tunes and he just loved it. And he made a wee speech after us about, about, you know, he doesn't come from the rugby tradition at all. He's, you know, he's a football guy. He's um, sports done the United. He'd never really been to much rugby games. Uh, but he got a sense of the love uh, in the room. He, he could feel the love in the room. And it wasn't for him. It was all for Doddy and all for the, uh, you know, the greater good. And um, he was totally and utterly blown away by that night. And it was a brilliant night. Absolutely brilliant. And I was hosting it as well. Uh, along with Jill Douglas, the period as we're doing that together. So in the in the company of greatness with with Jill, she's amazing, and she's from down there as well. So she knew everyone. There was all the stories yeah. flying around, and it was lovely to be part of. And I was quite nervous, making sure Ricky was all right. No, but but it didn't it didn't matter. We raised. I mean, that night I think they raised they raised not me. They raised a lot of money. So it was really nice to be a, a part of. And Ricky has since. I mean, we've had Dory a lot of gigs uh, since then, and. And he, he's always asking me how he's doing. And he started, he messaged him and all that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a lovely thing that really lovely thing to be part yeah, of. It's, it's class and, and you've done so much for it and your involvement in sport, you're a buddies fan, uh, mm-hmm. St. Mirren, and you've done things for the club and you host football. You did the comic games again. Are you pinching yourself when these opportunities come along? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because, you know, as I said to you earlier, I wanted it was either music or sport that I wanted to do at school. So 
when I wasn't, I realized I wasn't good enough to be at sport. The next best thing is you have your music career and then you can start working in the company of great sports people. So yeah, if you're broadcasting, you meet sports people, you meet your heroes, you know, you meet folks that you've watched on the telly and they're your pundits. So I'm constantly, and I have to stop giggling actually when I walk, I meet people and go, <laughs> nice, nice to meet you. you know? John, I met Sean Fitzpatrick and we were working for the Beeb and I was like, Oh my God, what are you going to do? I'm Keith Wood, mate, Keith Wood. Keith Wood was on the programme sitting there going, I watched that Lions documentary, you're amazing. And I was a terrifying individual, but you know, and he's just lovely. And you see, you meet all these people. And uh, they're great, Jeremy Gusway, honestly. And, uh, <laughs> off stage gag, off stage gag. We'll that's, come that's, back we to should that. never, never do an off stage gag. But, but do you know, that's everybody loves Doogie Vipond because you love all those things you do and the people that you're with and you're talking about Doddy putting people at ease people love working with, with Doogie Vipont it's, and it's warm and it's cuddly and things like Landward and the Adventure Show and all those things it's just comfortable, nice and I'm not surprised you got letters from hotels saying thank you you are close to bloody perfect, Mr. Viper. It's actually dull, actually dull. No, no, no. I should be a bit more don't. rock and roll. No, this is this is the man we love. It is brilliant. Doogie, I'm I'm worried now because I'm getting the listen, it's it's time up because people are I gonna know. have to listen to this in three bits. So firstly, thank you. But at the end of the pods, I would ask people to finish the sentence. And you're not allowed to give me the family and the sort of stock answer so you have to finish the sentence happiness is so for <gasps> Doogie Vipond happiness is so I can't do the stock answer I was going to see my boys immediately I'll see my sons but I can't do that it, it has <laughs> to be it has to be something with the boys it can't just be the boys we know you love your boys what is it what is the, what are the moments with your boys at the moment, at the moment, my boys, it's basically, it's sadly Zoom chat. That's all I've got because I haven't seen them for such a long time. Happiness is hugging them and giving them a kiss, um, but that's not happening just now. But, but happiness, I actually think happiness for me is being out on my bike. I, and I know that because you did lots of that. And this, what, I'm worried about, especially what's Scotland, but then places like Newcastle, I'm worried what they're like when the pubs open. I hate to think the carnage of that. But when it opens up, are your three boys now your mates? Can you have a barbecue and a few beers and Nick will throw something on the barbecue and you just have a grand old time? Or are you uh, yes. still watching them saying, behave yourself, I'm your dad? Well, of course I'm going to say behave yourself, behave yourself I'm your dad. But um, I think, that, I have to say, I think that the younger, their age group, I, th I think all kids have had a really tricky time this past year. And, you know, when... I was that age. The only thing I was worried about is have I had enough money to buy a pint of tenants, you know? So, you know, and genuinely, and I was, the fact that they are having to think big picture about pandemic and being careful and all that, this is, they're at the age where you should be carefree. They're at the age where you, you make an arse of things and, and somebody picks you up or not, or you see somebody else making an arse of things and somebody picks them up and, and where you develop friendships that last for life. And I, and I think, they're not really getting the chance to do that because they've got this bigger thing to worry about. So I, I am concerned for that generation. I genuinely think that we, you know, we're going to have to kind of, you know, treat them carefully when they come out. So the answer to your question is, will you still be um, pals? Yes. If we're having the barbecue in my back garden, 
we're all drinking beer, although Hamish, the youngest, doesn't really drink because he's, he's only 17 at the moment. And I genuinely think he's not drinking, but you know, he, can have a, he can have a drink if he wants. But uh, of course I'm still going to be going, right, you've had, you've had 15 now. No more than 20. Be careful. Don't overdo it. Yeah, you, you'll though be getting a letter thanking you tomorrow morning for your conduct this evening. Exactly, like your dad used to. <laughs> like your dad used to. See, that's the worrying thing, Bruce. I'm just going to have to say to you, one, one thing I've got to stop myself from doing, and I do I try and I do it all the time, and I've got to stop myself from doing it with them, is because I have had quite a lot of experience, and any father has had experience. I mean, you're anywhere you go, well, I remember I did this, we did that, oh, in that bar there, we did that. And it's nice to be able to do that, but also I, I, they have to ask, I have to be asking them things about what they're doing what, and what experience they've had there. And then so that it doesn't slightly belittle what I, just because I played it, you know, all that, there's, there's Edinburgh Castle, we played in the ramparts there and all that. They, I want them to remember when we went to Edinburgh Castle when they were younger, because that's more yeah. important, you know, so I need to stop that. Uh, yeah, and not every dad can pull those stories, so didn't give me that rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, I, but, but just in terms of no, but I, you know what I mean. But every, everyone, no, I know everyone you, has their I own stories. Mean. But they yeah. have it's their time. It's their time to shine. You know, it's their time to flourish and, and be and have their life and all that stuff as well. You know, and that's important. It's very important. Diggy, I absolutely love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. I don't know if you, you're telling me the truth that you don't do pods because you're an absolute master. But I'm so <laughs> glad you came on here. I have loved it. Thank you. I don't do them just for you, Bruce. I genuinely, well, <laughs> no, genuinely, I don't do. I guess because you guys do them all the time. You, I could be doing all, one every day, every week. So no, but you asked me straight away. I was like, happiness is doing Bruce's podcast. Yes, yes. We're going to cut that. That's going to be the. Oh, you bugger! Yeah, Diggy Vipod. Thank you. Go and enjoy the rest of your day. You are an absolute star, and I hope to see you in person soon, probably at Murrayfield. Let's hope so. Turn the music down, Bruce. Good to hear you. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was one of the most enjoyable hours I could spend in the company of greatness. I love him to bits. He is a role model. If you've enjoyed this, please go to Apple, Acast, and Spotify. Please subscribe. Leave a review if you've enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, remember... If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So leave us a review. Make sure other people can see it and hear about it. Subscribe. Tell your friends because happiness is. Doogie Vipond has been and seen and done it all. And don't we just love him for it. And I cannot wait to be in his company again. We'll also be live on Facebook and YouTube. So catch us there. Thank you to big handsome Sean for pushing the buttons and pulling the strings from Fill Your Boots. Give him a follow and listening in to his podcast as well. My name is Bruce Edison from happiness is egg shaped and this has been the happiness is podcast hello i'm mayhem hello i'm chaos and And our happiness is egg shaped happiness is egg shaped and loves a circle with no end what's going on it's not about this last night and he said happiness is egg shaped right um happiness is egg shaped Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.